Welcome to the next edition of the Law of Nations podcast. My name is Anthony Welsh and I'm a barrister at Matrix Chambers. Today we're going to be talking about the crossover between arbitration and criminal law. As international arbitration has increased in prominence, the legal issues which are called for resolution are ever expanding. This includes taking us into territory which can make civil law practitioners feel distinctly uncomfortable, namely criminal law. Perhaps one of the most prominent examples of this was the World Duty Free and Republic of Kenya case, an ICSA case from 2006 which grappled with the issue of contracts procured through corruption. Since then, bribery and corruption has become an increasingly prominent issue on questions of jurisdictional admissibility. The criminal-civil crossover continues to expand, especially as criminal behaviour is subject to increasing international regulation. Arbitrators or Arbitration Council may be expected to deal with a range of criminal issues, from money laundering to civil fraud, to extradition to financial sanctions. In this podcast, we're going to explore what lessons civil law practitioners may learn from criminal law advocates. And with me to discuss this topic is Tim Owen QC, who is also a member of Matrix Chambers. Tim has acted in a wide range of business crime cases, including um, dealing with issues such as market abuse, bribery and corruption, sanction offences, cartel offences, frauds of all kinds, insider dealing and other regulatory offence, both as trial lawyer and as an appellate lawyer. Uh, Tim's international practice takes him to a range of jurisdictions, some of which we will talk about in this podcast. Uh, welcome, Tim. Thanks very much, Angeline. Um, so let's start, I think, by looking at the topic of the differences in advocacy style between criminal and civil law, which I think is, um, certainly from my perspective, is a fascinating area. Um, and it's clear, if you were to look down your CV, Tim, that you've dealt with some pretty difficult cases. And one of the things that really interests me as an advocate is there will be times where you get a case and the facts are not particularly sympathetic. Um, but in many of the cases which I deal with, the level of what are not sympathetic facts is probably very different to the level of what counts as not sympathetic facts for your case. And in particular, one of the most difficult cases, I imagine, although you may tell me this is wrong, that you've had to deal with in recent times was the um, case of the British banker Rurik Jutting, who was prosecuted in Hong Kong for, some, for the sadistic um, double killings. Um, uh, there and that that was a case which was reported widely across the world. You acted as a defence lawyer, arguing the defence of diminished responsibility. And um, now, I, what I wanted to explore with you is, in cases where the facts are so difficult, like a case like that, how do you go about putting your defence in a sympathetic way? I mean, bearing in mind that obviously in a criminal case you have both a judge and a jury, and that might sure. add a different um, dynamic. Uh, well. I mean, Mr. Jutting's case, Rurik Jutting's case, was obviously a particularly uh, gruesome, gruelling and difficult case. Um, it, it was a case where the jury was required to look at some awful video images and recordings made by the defendant in the course of, of the abuse and, and killing of, of the two women. And the reason they had to do it, because that evidence was directly relevant to his state of mind at the time and therefore directly relevant to the issue of diminished responsibility. Um, now, of course, not all cases are like that in terms of the nature of the evidence, uh, and different cases obviously require different approaches. But I think in any criminal case, it's essential as an advocate to be seen as an honest, reliable, trustworthy person who doesn't seek to avoid 
obvious difficulties in the evidence. Uh, as someone who doesn't patronize, humiliate, bully, or trick witnesses, um, and also someone who confronts and seeks to provide answers to the questions that are likely to concern the tribunal of fact, you know, a lay jury in all serious criminal cases. You need to remember that you will be addressing them last in your closing speech, and by that stage you need to be someone that they want to listen to, someone who they respect and trust. Um, because if, if you haven't achieved that, then you're not doing your job effectively. Um, and so the way you behave in front of the jury at all points in the trial, a trial which can last sometimes months, um, uh, that's crucial. And I think the more extreme are the allegations, the more important it is to be sensitive to the dangers of prejudice and, and revulsion um, on the part of the tribunal. Um, in the case of Rurik Jutting, um, the medical evidence, because it was a case about medical evidence, there was no dispute about the facts of the case of what had actually happened. Um, the question was whether he had um, substantial impairment of, of, of his mental responsibility. And the medical evidence certainly provided strong evidence for his diminished responsibility defence. But at the same time, there was an obvious danger that once the jury had seen the video evidence and heard all the details of the interviews, um, they would be prejudiced beyond measure. And that danger had to be raised and, and confronted in front of the jury, to the jury, rather than ignored. Um, so although it may sound cliched, I think the key to advocacy in a, in a difficult criminal trial um, is to be honest, fair, thoughtful, sensitive, and understanding of the likely concerns of the jury and not to hide from them. So, and, and um, do you think that those sort of principles have broader application? Because in, in the course of your practice, you also deal with um, cases where, which raise criminal issues, but are more obviously in the civil context. So maybe market abuse cases, or if you're dealing with fraud cases, do, do you adopt the same approach? Um, I, I mean, I think fraud cases, for obvious reasons, um, are usually are not so inflammatory because they are usually about people who've lost money, uh, not about people who've been murdered or raped or, or uh, otherwise abused, sexually abused or whatever. And so by definition, you're looking at a sort of drier, less emotive area of human um, alleged criminal activity. And so I think, it, it, of course, in all fraud cases, whether it's a civil or criminal case, the, the ultimate issue for, for the tribunal, in fact, is, is will be one of dishonesty. And you may well have to uh, cross-examine harshly, strongly, um, and accuse people of dishonesty, lying, fabrication, and all of that. But I think there is a difference between a fraud trial uh, and one involving much more extreme allegations in that by definition you will be looking at it's usually a document heavy case and, and you're then arguing about what the implications of a series of transactions is uh, and generally that's a, a drier area of, um, uh, of, of criminal law as a result. And do you find that having a jury there makes a very big difference to your advocacy style? Do you mean having a jury in a criminal fraud Yeah, trial? yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, it's obviously the case that um, 
when you're dealing with a lay a panel of lay people for whom it may be their first and only experience of being in a courtroom the whole process is much slower yeah uh, there's no pre-reading of documents as you have in a fraud a civil fraud trial with a judge or or an arbitration you don't have detailed pleadings you don't have the exhaustive exchange of allegations and answers to the allegations and so on so you're having to build up and explain to a jury from scratch, from cold, where they've done no pre-reading, what the case is about. And what the law is, presumably, as well. And what the law is. Uh, I mean, though, of course, it's up to the judge to give the directions of law. Yeah. But it's increasingly the case now that um, advocates are allowed, uh, to some extent, to, to, to anticipate what the judge is going to say and, 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 and explain to the jury how they say their case fits in with the legal um, framework that will ultimately be um, presented to the jury. And I think one of the things that is a civil law lawyer that we, um, as you as you have to deal with potential allegations of crime which crop up in the civil law context, one of the things that we become quite anxious about is the standard of proof which one should apply. Um, and even if you're still applying a civil law standard of proof, you, the, there is a sense that where there is a serious allegation made, one has to, there has to be more robust evidence in order to support that yes. allegation. Um, is that something which um, you think that perhaps civil law lawyers are a bit more nervous about than criminal law? I mean, how do you sort of feel that I don't think handling I, the evidence differ, differs? In yeah, I don't, actually, I don't think it makes any difference at all to, to how you gather evidence to present your case and, and so on. Because... I mean, the issue of what standard of proof applies in a civil proceeding, mm. uh, even where allegations of criminal activity are made, I think it's pretty clear and, and well settled um, in the common law world. Um, Lord Hoffman said in a, in a well-known case in Appeals to the House of Lords in 2008, the case of Re B, he said about the applicable standard of proof in civil proceedings um, that there's only one rule of law namely that the occurrence of the fact in issue must be proved to have been more probable than not. Common sense, not law, requires that in deciding this question, regard should be had, to whatever extent appropriate, to the inherent probabilities. And he gave the example that if, if he was asked to find that um, a lion had been walking through Regent's Park as opposed to a dog, he would expect to have... Um, slightly more reliable or, or um, well-supported evidence to f before he would found, found that there was a lion in Regent's Park. So, I mean, it's a simple illustration. So, the answer is the standard, generally speaking, um, in all civil proceedings, uh, remains the same. There isn't a shifting standard, but this question of having regard to inherent probabilities is, is the way in which people then think, well, in order to prove it, I'll have to produce more evidence. But I don't think that the fact that the standard differs as between criminal and civil proceedings does ultimately make a difference to how you approach gathering evidence or how you present it. Um, whether you are in a civil or a criminal trial process, the evidence reveals what it reveals. And that's because the evidence doesn't change. Yeah. There's no... It's not going to change, no. I mean, I, I think that you know, the standard of proof, there is clearly... Uh, a difference, and, and I say that because I, I, I sit as a, an acting judge of the Grand Court of the Cayman Islands, and I occasionally sit there as a judge alone trying serious criminal cases because in Cayman 
partly because it's a small island jurisdiction, um, the defendant can elect, even in a serious charge like murder, to be tried by a judge alone rather than a jury. And so I have sat trying um, serious allegations of robbery and, and sexual offences. And it's actually only when you have to perform that function um, as both the tribunal of law and fact um, that you do, you know, it does come home to you then that there is a difference between being sure of something and being satisfied merely that something is more probable than not. And so I'm not suggesting there isn't a difference between what the outcome may be, but you go where the evidence leads you. It's not a question of changing your approach to the evidence, because in whatever context you're working as an advocate, you'll always seek to present your strongest case. And the question then is, does it meet the standard? So I suppose I wonder whether that, I mean, that means that in civil proceedings, those who are taking the decisions, um, arbitrators or judges, whoever it may be, could afford to be more robust than perhaps, I mean, I don't know whether... I don't think it's a thing about being more robust. It's, it's about the fact that you don't need to be satisfied to as high a standard before you make a finding of fact. Um, uh, the fact that somebody may be found or, or, or findings of criminal liability may be established in a civil proceeding on the balance of probabilities may well be a reason ultimately why the tribunal may send the papers to the police or to the prosecuting authority. But because by definition no one is on trial and the standard is different, um, it, it isn't obviously, uh, it doesn't amount to the same uh, finding. Well, let's, uh, well uh, the, the sort of duties which may arise um, on a tribunal when faced with criminal issues is something I want to yes. come back and talk about. I think before we get there, what would be... Oh. I, I'm also quite interested in how, as counsel, you go about um, preparing the case where it raises um, criminal issues and whether that makes any difference. So, you know, if you're preparing a witness to give evidence, and I understand, you know, in many criminal cases, the witnesses, a defendant may not necessarily give evidence, and there's yep. a, yep. obviously a strategic decision to be taken there, but if you're dealing with civil cases where serious criminal issues are being raised, do you see any difference in how you prepare your witness for giving of evidence? Well, I mean, you need to distinguish between, a, a, in a criminal context, certainly the, the defendant, your client, and witnesses, because the rule here, certainly in England and Wales, is as a counsel, you're not allowed to interview witnesses. So you don't meet them. Um, the solicitors uh, take witness statements, and then you, as counsel, call the witness without ever having met them before. Um, and obviously, the, the that must be quite a terrifying experience at some point, because you don't really know. You can see what they've told someone else, but you don't actually have a real feel for how they react, will react to your questions. True, uh, but you then have to hope and trust your solicitor's done a good job and, and can pass on um, or any necessary information um, about background and so on to, to help you, well, for, to help you to make a judgment about whether ultimately you want to call them. Um, in terms of preparing your client in a criminal trial, um, uh, I mean, f of course you prepare exactly as you would in any trial where you're calling your client to give evidence, um, although in a criminal trial, as you say, um, one of the biggest decisions is whether you ultimately do call the client, and that may be uh, obviously a very difficult decision. Um, but um, you, you can't, I think, 
approach uh, preparing your client for evidence on the basis that you're rehearsing them like an actor uh, to take part in a play, uh, to perform. Um, you tell them, obviously, you go over all the difficult areas in the case, you, you go through with them uh, their answers to all the questions that you can anticipate um, will be asked of them when they're cross-examined. And you go through the key rules, which are generally applicable, make sure you answer the question asked, listen carefully to the question, ask for clarification if you're confused, keep your answers short. If your question can be answered yes or no, it's try and do that. It's very similar to basically what, yeah. what we would do in a... It, exactly. So there's no massive difference there. Um, don't answer a question with a question, don't get into an argument with the prosecutor, um, <laughs> so on. Um, I Does mean, that happen? <laughs> oh, no, sometimes it's just unavoidable. No matter how often you try and warn and prepare a witness, a defendant, you know, do not get personal, don't yeah. begin a massive row with the... If, 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 you're, if it's unfair, I'll object. You don't need to do it. Uh, and if I don't object, that means I think it's fair and you need to answer the question. So, you know, but people... Yeah, I mean, it's my experience that the people you think are going, quite often think they're going to be quite good because they oh, come yeah. across as quite confident as soon as they start giving evidence. It yeah. slightly falls apart. Um, whereas those who are super diligent and work really hard tend yeah. to withstand it a lot better. It's very difficult to predict who will ultimately yeah. perform well in the witness box. Um, I, as a general thing, I do think that over-preparation can produce an artificial mm. witness. Um, you know, the jury box is very lonely. You can be there sometimes for days in a complex fraud case. Um, and you want your client, obviously, to be in a position to do his or her best and come across naturally. Mm. But often that's achieved by not sort of massive rehearsal and coaching which I think is certainly more... And particularly in really high pressure... I mean, the, the circumstances in which witnesses are given evidence in criminal proceedings or even fraud proceedings are generally a lot more high pressure yeah. than um, some of the civil commercial law disputes which one might be involved in. Um, well, you're not going to go to jail at the end of a... Yes, exactly. <laughs> one would hope not, at least, anyway. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so, so it sounds like, I mean, it's a very sort of similar approach, actually. There's not too much difference no. between the two worlds. No. Um, uh, I mean, one difference is obviously um, you have examination in chief at a criminal trial, mm. which is, I think, a much underestimated skill because that's the point at which you get to introduce your client to the jury uh, to give them the chance to set out their case to best effect. Um, it's very important to get a witness into a position, I think, a defendant on trial, to get them into a position where they can do their best uh, and get across uh, their explanations. And, and that they're asked the difficult questions by you mm. before they're cross-examined. Uh, and in, almost all, in all criminal trials, there will be difficult areas because otherwise they wouldn't be accused. And, and I think that it, because obviously with examination in chief is, is commonly very extremely limited in yeah. civil proceedings, but I have seen quite a lot of it done recently, particularly in circumstances where the respondent is just not turning up. And so the claimant needs to lead. Yeah. There's no def summary judgment, default judgment situation. So the, the claimant needs to lead a little bit of evidence yeah. before the tribunal asks questions. And that all tends to be done in a much more open way. But... You know, it's not something which civil lawyers do as regularly as criminal lawyers, and it is quite a different skill, I think. Yeah, I think I think it is because just just the thing of realizing uh, that you you should ask um, 
non-leading questions um, to, to tell the story, but to let the defendant tell the story rather than you lead them all the way through it. But I think, yes, in civil cases, obviously judges hate, generally speaking, having to go through it because they say, well, I've read the statement. I don't need to hear. You don't need to do that. Um, and um, I mean, that is a fundamental difference between the two. But it's interesting that the skill set, I mean, one of the things I suppose is if you are preparing a witness by leading evidence from them, that may be, um, that sort of may teach you quite a lot about a witness and how they're likely to give evidence, particularly under cross-examination. So I don't know whether that's something which actually would be a useful thing that people did a, a bit more when preparing a witness to give evidence. Yeah. Um, I think the difficult thing is preparing to someone for the actual live experience of cross-examination is, is by definition, well, at one sense, it's impossible because you can't create the tension mm. and the drama and the, the nervousness of the actual thing. And I, I've had cases where I've called my client and they have performed apparently brilliantly in response to my questions. And they've come across as you know calm and reasonable and they've answered all the questions I've asked them without any difficulty. And then as soon as the cross-examination starts, the sense of hostility and the fear of being trapped and tricked into giving mm. an answer which is then going to be uh, used against you almost immediately kicks in and people can just become completely different characters. Yeah, and reluctant to sort of make even what are basic concessions. Oh, yeah, concessions. yeah absolutely, yeah. For, the, for, for the fear of, um, of, of, of walking into a trap. Yeah. No. And I mean, I, I, I don't really think there's much... I don't think there's necessarily much you can do about that. Um, I mean, you can rehearse cross-examination. You can often, if, you've, if there's, you, you're working with a junior, you can have the exercise where you are, act as a junior calls the client-in-chief in a conference, and then you go in and ask all the difficult questions. But by definition, it's Yeah, and you can't artificial. suggest what the answers are either. So it's no, no, of, you're, you're not so suggesting the yeah. answers. You're there simply to tease out or point out to the defendant what the difficulties are in his case. Um, with a view to seeing what his answers are. So, um, moving from the role as counsel in you know criminal cases where where they're being dealt with in criminal courts or criminal issues um, in civil um, uh, litigation, one of the issues which I think um, I've had experience of, others might have experience of, sitting as a arbitrator, is to what extent one, um, a, a, a case comes before you and on the facts of the case or the legal argument, you think that there may be a criminal yeah. issue. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, what if there is, um, for example, you know, a loan agreement or something like that, there's no obvious explanation for the purpose of that loan agreement and you, and you perhaps think, well, this is actually a suspect arrangement. You know, what's being acquired or the commercial rationale is just not there. But this is the scenario that I'm talking about now where no party has expressly raised yes. any um, illegality at all. Um, do you think that a tribunal has a duty to investigate where there's a mere suspicion but no direct allegation? Mm. How would you deal with that sort of situation? I think, the, is there a duty to investigate? No, I don't think there's any independent duty imposed by law um, on an arbitral panel 
to become an inquisitorial body. Um, an arbitration panel are, are not um, is not there as a, as a police force. Um, they're there to respond to the evidence and provide um, a judgment in light of the evidence before it. But of course, it, there will be cases, it seems to me, where even though neither party is alleging fraud or other criminality tainting a contract that's an issue, the panel may have its doubts and are entitled to make findings of fact based on the application of ordinary fact-finding principles. Um, a circumstantial case of illegality may be as strong as one based on, on direct evidence. And if a panel believes that there's a case to answer, um, even though neither party, for whatever reason, um, uh, has chosen to raise fraud or corruption or some other illegality, uh, it seems to me uh, uh, that a panel can certainly, in light of the material before it, invite the party upon whom suspicion is falling to respond to the concern and potentially provide evidence to rebut a suspicion, failing which, if they choose not to, um, then the panel may make findings accordingly. And so, while therefore I don't think there's a, a duty to investigate, nonetheless, uh, it seems to be an inevitable consequence of its duty to make findings of fact that in a case where they are having those suspicions, they'll, they'll reflect that in their judgment. So, and if you're going to reflect it, obviously, in, in your um, judgment or your reward, you need to put that issue before the parties and invite, invite yeah. submissions on that. Yes. And I suppose one might also say that there is a duty to render enforceable award. Um, and there's a question as to how far you go in terms of ensuring that your award is enforceable. But certainly, um, you know, it could very well be the case that an award is issued and then some party takes a point later about any suspect criminality. Um, but it's quite difficult, I think, because there's a question, there is always inevitably a question as to how far you go. You raise, you write to the parties and say, take the example that I gave you, well, there was no, no obvious evidence has been um, put before us as to what the purpose of the loan, the tribunal will be assisted by, if the parties could explain mm. um, what the purposes of that loan would be. That seems to me, then they can take the choice. They either explain it or they don't explain it, and the tribunal has to make a decision based on that. Yes. But that's not an investigation, I don't think. That's a raising an issue, allowing the parties... Yes, it's inviting the parties to uh, submit if they wish to in the light of the evidence that the panel has before it, as opposed to the evidence that the panel wants to go out and gather for itself. And there's nothing, you know, in a matter of criminal law or regulation, that if you suspect that there is a, an element of criminality, you know, if you think, well, actually, what the reason for the parties coming to me so that I would end a reward is essentially to cleanse this arrangement. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, do I, you know, sitting as an arbitrator, have any reporting requirements? I mean, it may well depend on jurisdiction, or is there something that I should be concerned about from my own personal obligations? Well, um, in terms of the money laundering concern, um, I think the reality is arbitral panels need entertain no real fear that by making an award they may be enmeshed in money laundering. And certainly that's the case in English law since the decision of the Court of Appeal in Bowman and Fells, where the court decided that participation in litigation could not be said to constitute becoming concerned in an arrangement facilitating the acquisition, retention, use or control 
of criminal property, etc. In other words, the Section 328 uh, money laundering offence under the Proceeds of Crime Act um, 2002. Um, and the court went on to say that participation in a settlement process which leads to an out-of-court settlement of litigation also falls outside the scope of Section 32A because the settlement of the dispute uh, forms an integral part of the conduct of civil litigation. And so, and the Law Society guidance um, and the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators uh, similarly, I think, makes all of that clear. And so, in a, in a normal arbitration where it's obvious that there is a dispute, this is litigation that's uh, genuine litigation, there is a dispute of fact, and the parties are slugging it out. Um, and you then have concerns that you're potentially adjudicating upon criminal property, you're not, you don't have to be worried that you will, by proceeding to conduct the arbitration, you will not be guilty of money laundering and you don't have a duty to uh, make a suspicious activity report uh, or, or you don't have the uh, record keeping and internal reporting requirements set out in the money laundering regulations. So that's clear. But of course, if you believe that in fact um, the litigation is sham um, created for the purpose of laundering money, um, that does with, remain within the ambit of Section 328 because it right. would not be genuine litigation. Right, okay, yes. And so if you form that view, then arguably you would have a duty to report it. But that then raises a very difficult dilemma, I think, because what if you think, well, I have this arrangement before me, it is a, um, um, it looks to me suspicious, I am very concerned that this is a potentially a sham piece of litigation. Um, but you, I think at that stage, would want to have at least have taken a few more steps to raise your suspicions or deal with that, get something before you would ever... Well, I agree. I mean, there may be, there might be difficult questions, uh, I suppose. Um, I, I can see that. Um, and of course, there is then the tipping off <laughs> concern yes. that um, it, once you're satisfied um, or you, you, you've come to a state of belief or suspicion that this is sham litigation designed to launder the proceeds of crime, then strictly speaking, in those circumstances, you should not be tipping off the parties um, of your suspicion. You make the report. So you, you but, basically have to, you have to, ra you have to raise legitimate evidential questions to ascertain the broader circumstances, but you can only go so far. Yes. And what you would never do, I suspect, is suggest to the parties that this is... No. no you because would... then you would get into the tipping off offence and that would be... It's, it's a diff yeah, it's a difficult one. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm probably not sufficiently experienced in arbitration to know how often that type of yeah. um, concern arises. I mean, in other words, how frequently arbitrations are set up entirely artificially. Yes, I mean, for, fortunately, hopefully it's sort genuinely, of... It's not a genuine dispute, it's not genuine litigation. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would hope, one would hope that that's fairly rare, but you can't, I mean... You can't exclude it. Yeah. You can't exclude it, and I think that, that then really raises the... There is a tension as to, there's no duty to investigate, but what steps do you take in order to satisfy you have enough 
to determine that this is not likely to be genuine. Yes, I think your what your suggestion. I mean, in the process of 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 built, preparing the case and the and pleadings being exchanged, issues will arise, and and you can issue. Um, directions or questions designed to address the concerns that you have. Yes. And it may be at that point the parties will be become very alert to the fact that you're alert. Yes, yes. Um, but, uh, but that's not tipping off, that's simply pursuing reasonable inquiries to satisfy yourself about areas of legitimate concern. Okay, so, well, um, that's really interesting also I, I i think it is a i think it can potentially be a tricky area but hopefully an area that um not very many of us have to come across very often um it just one final um crossover between arbitration and criminal law that i wanted to talk to you about tim because i know that you've been involved um in some very interesting recent proceedings, and that's the interplay between the international arbitration regime and the extradition yes. regime. Um, so in a very short period of time, actually, in the last year or so, we've had two judgments from the English court, magistrates' courts, dealing with this topic, the Albania and um, uh, Baghetti and the Romania and Adamescu case. Um, you were involved in the Adamescu case acting for the Crown Prosecution Service, um, I think. Yes. Um, and in both cases, what had happened was an ICSID tribunal had issued a provisional measures order against the state involved in the investment treaty proceedings, directing them to stay the criminal proceedings which were seeking the extradition of the claimant um, investor to face criminal charges in the host state. The host state didn't comply with that provisional measures order, and so the argument was then um, extradition was sought um, in the in England in both cases, and the argument was run before the criminal court in England that they that the criminal English criminal court should not order extradition on the grounds that the extradition by the host state was an abusive process, given that the provisional measures order was there against yes. the um, host state. So the judgments went different ways in the Baghetti judgment, the uh, magistrate's court gave effect to the tribunal's measures and stayed the extradition proceedings, um, but in the Adamescu judgment it refused to do so. So with your, I wondered if you could just briefly explain to us, say something about sure. um, what the arguments were in the Adamescu case in particular and why the court refused to stay the extradition. Um, so yeah, go ahead. Sure. Um, you're right, there were, there were two cases within a year, both before the Westminster Magistrates Court, one involving Albania, that was Paketti, and then one involving Romania, and they were both applications for extradition under the European Arrest Warrant um, procedure, although there's a difference in that Albania is a part two country under the 2003 Extradition Act, whereas Romania is part one, and that does make a difference because in a part one case, there is a, an underlying context of mutual trust and confidence, which is, is not there as a matter of law in relation to part two. But anyway, leaving that um, rather technical point aside, the, the argument that was run in Adamescu, and I should say this is uh, leave to appeal has been sought, and so this case may well uh, be heard on appeal possibly later this year if leave to appeal is granted. But the argument that was run was, as you've summarised, that in circumstances where Mr. Adamescu was a witness, um, a, a main witness, um, in relation to the company that was engaged in the arbitration 
dispute with Romania, the panel issued a provisional measures order effectively saying that the continuation of Romania's extradition request um, to the UK um, was incompatible, inconsistent with the um, smooth running of the arbitration proceedings, um, proceedings to which Romania had consented uh, uh, under the treaty. And the argument then was run before the English Domestic Criminal Court that in those circumstances, because the Provisional Measures Order was binding as a matter of international law, yeah. it was an abuse of the process of the English court to proceed and that it would be, in effect, um, uh, it would amount to the English court sanctioning and approving or rather going along with um, a breach of uh, a matter as a matter at the international law level. The contrary argument was um, the ruling of or the decision in the PMO was not binding on Westminster Magistrates Court um, and insofar as Romania were pursuing their extradition request they were doing so under primary legislation and under EU law in the form of the European um, uh, extradition framework agreement and that provisional measures order was a, an impermissible attempt to interfere with the discharge of the criminal law under primary legislation and EU law. Um, in fact, at that stage, when the case was determined, the ACMEA decision had mm. not been um, handed down. And insofar as um, the ACMEA decision effectively held that uh, um, there was an incompatibility between international arbitral tribunal rulings and intra on, on intra EU disputes. Yes. That was incompatible with EU law. Then the decision in the Romania uh, Adamescu case is on the face of it um, consistent with the, the ruling of the CJEU because insofar yes. as uh, Romania's argument, I mean, sorry, Mr. Adamescu's argument was based on. Um, the ability of the PMO in effect to trump EU law, mm. um, that's something which on the face was inconsistent with ACMEA. Yeah, I mean the, uh, I mean the ACMEA decision will, um, will has sown um, serious seeds of discord and I think, um, and I can see that there is a parallel here um, and not least because there may be a question as to the jurisdiction of the um, tribunal yes. um, determining a dispute um, under the intra-EU BIT, which of course will then call into question the effectiveness of the, sure, the sure. provisional measures order. Sure. But, but it is, a, but, a, but as you say, it's an inter interesting example of the clash between the two different international yeah. law regimes yeah. and the magistrate's court taking the view that the arbitration regime cannot trump. Yes. I mean, was there, uh, it, it, was there any assessment in the decision um, as between whether the, the, there was, in effect, a different standing of priority between civil law and criminal law proceedings? Well, there, there, there was, that, was un, that wasn't actually an express basis for the finding, but it, it sort of permeates the reasoning of the judge. And I have to say, as an English uh, criminal lawyer, the idea that you could rely on an order made ultimately by a private um, tribunal um, under an investment treaty agreement, you could rely on such a provisional measures order to in effect frustrate and over overrule the due operation 
of criminal law struck me as as wrong. I mean, it just <laughs> is not something you could ever imagine. I mean, I, I, if you think of an example, I, I tried to translate it into another example. It, it, you, you've got a situation in which a, a person is on trial um, at Southwark Crown Court for fraud. Um, and at the same time, that person um, uh, is also useful as a witness in an arbitration tribunal. The idea that you could turn up at Southwark Crown Court with a provisional measures order from an arbitration tribunal saying, oh, by the way, can you please stop your trial at Southwark Crown Court? Because we think our tribunal needs this person as a witness and it's frustrating our proceedings. I mean, that, in my view, is just laughable. But I that suppose that, happen. I mean, just to play devil's advocate slightly, if you, um, there is, there may be a distinction between uh, the, the, the competing processes and whether one, they're not quite parallel proceedings, wrong way to describe it, because they're dealing with different matters, but where you have um, proceedings going on at the same time, there's always a question about which proceedings have yeah. priority and so forth. But, um, well, I don't, actually, I don't think there is a question that the unerring rule, certainly in English law, is that civil proceedings are stayed while the criminal proceedings go ahead. Right. So criminal proceedings take priority. Right. So, Always. But, okay, so I would, I would, I, I, I see that. Um, but I suppose there, the reason why these issues tend to crop up in, particularly in international arbitration, particularly when you're dealing with situations with states, is that there may be an underlying allegation of... Um, uh, the host state using this as a means, to, uh, an abusive means in relation to the investor who's suing them. But I suppose that question of abuse is something which the extradition proceedings can, can take account of a on a separate argument. matter. That's an yeah. absolutely uh, clear, discrete point that could be run, which is that the very bringing of the charge um, by the requesting state is is bogus and uh, politically motivated, etc. Um, in order to frustrate um, the arbitration proceedings. Now, a court would then investigate that, and if that was made out, that would be a basis uh, to stay the extradition request. But the mere fact that somebody happens to be a, a useful witness in arbitration proceedings um, is not, well, as found so far, um, uh, at, at first instance, is not regarded as um, a basis to run an abusive process argument in an English criminal court. Well, I, I can say one thing for certainty, and that is that the interplay between EU law and um, investment treaty disputes is... Um, uh, run and run. Uh, run and, <laughs> will run and run and run. Thank you so much, Tim, for coming in and sharing your insights from criminal law. I, I found that particularly fascinating. Um, thank you so much. Great. Thank you very much.